I woke up on Saturday morning and saw something like 500 or 600 simultaneous visitors to our website. It just hit a point where it just started growing. You're listening to The Growth Show, a podcast that uncovers interesting stories and advice on growth from every corner of the business world. I'm Kip Bodner, CMO at HubSpot, and I'm thrilled to have Chris Savage, CEO and co-founder of Wistia, in our studio to talk about his video marketing company and its growth over the past decade. Before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to give you a heads up that this episode has a few instances of explicit language. If you need to put on some headphones, now's the time to do it. Let's talk about Wistia. Uh, a lot of people listening may have not heard about Wistia, know what you guys are up to at Wistia. So tell me a little bit about, give me the, the 30 seconds on what Wistia is, what you guys are out trying to do. So Wistia is a video marketing platform. Um, what that means is it's like video hosting and analytics and customizations, things like that, so that you can control the video experience on your website. Mm-hmm. Um, the analytics are designed so you can see what people are skipping and rewatching and get a picture of who's interested in your audience um, so that you can better target and then also so you can make your videos better. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see, there's about 200,000 companies that use us, companies based in Cambridge, Mass, about 60 people on the team. Okay, so... Digging in a little bit there, you started Wistia pretty soon after you graduated college. You know, what were the early days of that, of that like, you know, before you had 200,000 people using the platform, before you had a team who could do stuff, uh, when it was just a, a handful of folks, that there are a lot of people listening are probably in that situation right now, feeling that pain. So yeah. what was that like, and what kind of got you through that and over to the next phase? Yeah, I mean, so... When we started, I started with my co-founder, Brendan. We worked out of his bedroom in a 10-person house in uh, Cambridge near Inman Square. The beginning was hard. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was really hard. Like, it took us a year to make our first dollar, and then it took us another year to get to about, like, 10 customers. Um, so it was honestly just, like, a slog. And the whole time, we were just trying to understand, like, how do you build a product? Uh, who's going to use this? How are they going to pay? How do you ask them for money? How do you cold call? Like... Um, you know, I, we basically ha- didn't really have a plan. Like when we started, we thought we'd go for six months and either we'd be rich because we would have sold the company or we would have run out of money. And it took us about just under two years before we ended up raising an angel round, uh, because we got enough customers to sustain us. I had no idea what like financing was when we began. Um, and we we're like, oh, wow, like we've got these six customers. They're all big companies. They're trusting like two dudes in a bedroom, like maybe there's something here. Um, and that made us think like more people could help us. Um, but yeah, it was just a slog. I mean, honestly, even like five or six years in, we were still paying ourselves basically nothing. And, um, the team was crazy small, but we were just starting to figure out like, um, who our customer was, how they would, how we'd market the product, how, what people would want to buy all that good stuff. So it took a year to get your first customer. Yeah. Why didn't you give up? Um, we didn't give up because I was really, I told all these people we're going to do this thing and I didn't want to disappoint everybody and myself. Um, and I think both Brent and I just like, we're just extremely persistent. Um, and I, I, I think it was just like the fear of failure was really strong. Mm-hmm. 
that was probably a big part of it. And then eventually when we were like four people, it's because even though it was really slow going, like the actual work was super fun. Okay. So I think you and Brendan were very good friends or close going, going into this. What was that like? And did, did the fact that you had a co-founder, you know, was that a factor not giving up and like sticking with it? Like how, you know, if, if people are out there in the startup phase, like is that a important dynamic or like what was your experience? Yeah, I like? mean, I think having a co-founder absolutely made it harder to give up because you felt like you were disappointing this other person. And, uh, you know, we were good friends going into it, which was also hard because mm-hmm. we lived in the same house for four years. Like, um, there was no turning it off. Like both of our girlfriends were like, what are you doing? You know, like <laughs> this is insane. Um, and then eventually they're like, Oh, it makes sense. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think it was hard, but I think it was critical. It even still is like, you know, when you're building a company, there's ups and downs, like in every company, it's always hard. And like, sometimes there's things that you just need to say to someone else. Like, I'm not crazy. Right. Like, this is hard. Like, no, you're not crazy. This is hard as shit. Uh, and what's uh, an example of one of those times when we were just like, "This is hard." I mean, I remember when, um, like, four years in, we'd raised one round of financing. We had just launched a new pricing plan um, and a new version of the product, and we are we started to get customers a lot faster. And we realized we were going to run out of money, and we had like missed time some bills, and we're like, we thought that we were going to like get you know these bills in December, and they came in in September or whatever it was. And I remember looking at Brennan being like, dude, we have less than a month of cash in the bank. Like, we're screwed. We're ruined. Like, how are we going to possibly get through this? And he's like, I don't know, man. We're just going to get through it. I'm like, I guess so. And you just find, like... How'd you get through it? Now now, now everybody everybody wants to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in that particular case, we um, cut back our... I believe we cut back our own salaries. uh, And we, the other two people on the team, we're going to, like, take care of them. That was going to buy us a little bit more time. Um, we'd done one angel round. I went and got one of our investors and um, convinced him that he should give us like a little bit of money to like hold us off. And then he gave us a little bit of money and we got two months out um, and the numbers like really started to kick up. And he was like, I believe in what you're doing. Let's make this easy on you because raising money sucks. It takes forever. Mm-hmm. He's like, come down to Florida and meet me. I'll fly you on my jet and we'll fly you around the East Coast and we'll raise money easily. And that's how we got out of it. So <laughs> it was more just the stress of the beginning. But um, yeah, and then it, like, you know, it was like figuring out how to manage the business. Like it, it was just a wake up call also. But Okay. And so you talked a little bit there about investors. Mm-hmm. You guys haven't raised a ton of capital by most technology startup standards. Yeah. Uh, but you have some investors you have to deal with them. You know, so there's kind of a double sided question here. Why did you raise so little capital compared to a lot of other companies? And how do you work with the investors that you do have? And yep. How's that relationship? Yeah. So uh, the reason we raised so little capital is because we could. Yeah. Um, we were always fearful that if we raised too much money, we would misalign our incentives. Um, and we wouldn't be focused on the customer enough. And we wouldn't be focused on like building a sustainable business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was a concern like from the very beginning. Um, and then, like over time, we fortunately were able to fund the growth of the business with customers, with mm-hmm. revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that's the reason why I think, like, if we'd raised ten million dollars five years ago, I'm sure we'd be out of business, or I certainly would no longer be able to work at Wistia. Because part of it also is like, as first time entrepreneurs, we didn't know what we're doing, mm-hmm. and there's an expectation if you raise a ton of money, you really know what you're doing. And I think a lot of people learn like trial by fire. I certainly have, but 
that's one reason. And th- and I think the way we interact with our investors now is um, I try to update them every quarter and like things are going on and they've all been in the company for a long time. Um, the first investors invested in 2008. So it's been seven years and they've seen us when things have been really hard. They've seen us as things have gotten better and they mm-hmm. trust us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very, I mean, it's a, it's a helpful relationship, um, but it's not one that takes a lot of time. Okay. That's interesting. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about just video broadly. It seems to me from from my perspective that you were you made a really smart decision nine and a half years ago saying that video was gonna be a massive part of the web. Yeah. And I think it's it actually probably took longer than maybe you had expected That's at the right. time yeah. to ha- happen, but I see it exploding now and I've talked with a bunch of people where video is becoming a primary marketing channel for yeah. them. So first of all, just you have the data, you you have the customers. Give us a little insight on the video industry on the web today and how businesses out there should be thinking about it. Yeah, so I mean, I think video video has changed dramatically um, since when we began. And the first thing, so the reason that made us start the company was, was I have a background in film. Mm-hmm. And um, in college, I made movies. I was fortunate enough to work on some like films that ended up doing pretty well. And I had this reel, and I was trying to put my footage on my website and show it off. But at that time, the options were real player, where you had to. You that was know, the worst. It was the worst, and everyone had to <laughs> real player sucked. Or you do QuickTime, and it looked really good. But then, like, no one could. Not every. If you weren't on a Mac, it wouldn't really work mm-hmm. consistently. You could do Flash video, but you had to own a copy of like Flash to do the conversion yourself, or you had to bootleg it. Um, and so it was like everything was inconsistent. The way that video was on every website was different. And then in t- late 2005, early 2006, I saw YouTube, I saw it really early and it was taking off. And the insight that I had was like, they are doing all of the encoding for you so you don't have to think about how to make video work. And that is a huge difference than anything I've seen before. And it turns out that they were also using open source tools to do all the encoding. Mm-hmm. Because there was like 10 other companies that were fast followers to YouTube and some of them were before YouTube. They were all doing the same thing at the same time because open source tools like FFmpeg is what it's called was available and you could use it. And so we saw them, we're like, this is gonna change video on the web forever. And so if there was ever a time to jump into something, like this is a good time because there's no experts yet. It's like the early, early days. And that's the thing that made us like start in the first place. You're also right that it took a lot longer than we expected for things really to kick up. Um, It wasn't until like three or four years ago that companies would reach out to us and say like, yeah, we are using video. How do I do like, or we want to use video. How I'm going to do this. Why, um, why do you, why do you think that delay I think, happened? I think what, that, what, what caused that shift? I think it's the cost of production. So it used to be extremely, extremely expensive, mm-hmm. um, to get a video camera. Like when I was in college, the cameras we used were like 15 grand and they were like the best, the best. And they're like, uh, probably an eighth of the resolution of what you get on a GoPro today. That was like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what has happened is that DSLRs like started supporting video maybe five years ago. Um, and just in general, the entire industry has changed. And as the cost of production has gone down, what's happened is that there's way more uses for video that instantly makes sense when you're not spending 30 grand to make a video, but you're spending like a thousand bucks or even less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we've seen is just tons and tons and tons of different uses that make total sense today that previously only made sense for entertainment. Okay, so... There are probably a lot of businesses out there nodding along, listening, and like, hey, yeah, I agree. Like, I see all this video everywhere. I know that my my customers or my prospects are, are watching video. I can afford the 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 thousand dollar camera now, but 
I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know yeah. how to make video. Like, I think this is, seems to be the biggest barrier to the problem is how do I make good videos? I yeah. can make a video that maybe looks good, yeah. but the video itself won't be good. And so what's what have you seen from the customer race? What, what are some pearls of wisdom that you could help other people kind of understand? That? Yeah, so I would just say first, I think video is really scary because it feels like it can have a huge effect on your brand because it can. And because if you're getting on camera, do you expose that actually you're less professional than people thought you were, you're a smaller team than they thought you were, whatever. Like yeah. everyone worries that video is going to erode trust. And I think that actually like the thing that's powerful about video is that it's easily the most authentic medium. Like it's hard to fake stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that reason, I think it works. And then in terms of actually doing the production yourselves, we've made a ton of content at Wistia teaching about this because with a, with your iPhone or your Android, and some cheap lights, you can make something look really great for less than 200 bucks. Um, so the thing I always tell people to do is like, get two lights, you can go to Home Depot and get them, you can get them on Amazon, you can spend less than 200 bucks. What you're gonna do is just like, when someone's on camera, you're gonna flatten out the shadows and make it so that someone's just focused on you. And you can go to wistia.com and you can check out our library and our learning section. And we teach all about how to set up the lights and how to make sure it looks right and all that good stuff. Um, and then I think the other thing is like sound quality is actually going to have a huge effect on the perception of how professional video is. So you can shoot something with your iPhone and if you have an external sound recorder, if you have another mic, that can be the difference between it feeling professional. So it looks like a choice that you shot mm-hmm. in an iPhone as opposed to that was the only option you had. Got it. I'm going to ask you a question around when people should use video. When I think about the web today, you've, you've got podcasting and, and audio kind of resurging and growing. You've yep. got video taken off. You've got folks like Medium and everything pushing on the tech side. If I were if I were somebody who was just telling a story, yeah. When should I think about using video versus those other those other kind of mediums and, and channels? Yeah, I mean, so I think first of all you want to think about like how you can use the mediums together. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't suggest that you only make a video and hope that um, that's going to cause people to take an action without also like having a landing page that makes it really clear what the ask is and having a really mm-hmm. clear call to action, all the other stuff. I think the things that lend themselves best to video are things where authenticity is going to be a lever for you. Um, and, and being like genuine or there's basically there's some emotional connection at that moment that's going to have video that's going to help. So an example is on landing pages, when someone comes in and they're not sure if they should trust you, if you have someone explaining not even why they should trust you, but what is the thing you're going to get? We've seen a huge uptick in conversions because in that moment, what the person cares about is like, are these people going to spam me? Are they going to like mm-hmm. cold call me when I'm not expecting it? Like what, what am I, am I, what am I actually getting here? Um, and I think whenever you have like a funnel or whenever you have something and you're trying to drive action and usually there would be a person who would be involved. So, uh, you find that you always want to call people after they do something and, or you always give them a demo about this very particular thing. A lot of those moments, you can use video as well. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is you have a, a smaller percentage of the interactions that need to have a phone call or the phone calls are more valuable because people have a better sense of what's going on. Okay. Talk, talking a little bit more about the company and how you've scaled it. So you had an interesting statement uh, a few minutes ago about if you had raised a bunch of money, you don't think you'd be in business today, you wouldn't have had the right incentives. But you went from two guys in a bedroom to 60 people. Mm-hmm. Uh what were the lessons learned in terms of hiring those people and setting up that organizational structure? Yeah, so um, when we began, we were definitely very flat. 
Um, and we were flat for a long time. And I think if you came to Wistia at some point and you said, tell me what makes Wistia unique, I'd be like, we're flat as hell. Like, and it's <laughs> sick. And like, no company is going to be better than us at doing this. And yada, yada, yada. And basically, we almost treated that like a core value. Yeah. Um, and then as we grew, it started to become clear to me that things were fracturing because um, by being really flat, it meant that certain decisions had to be centralized because no one knew who else to go to. And so by trying to be flat inadvertently, I had put myself in a position where like I was the bottleneck. Of you were decisions. like the evil dictator of Wistia or the, not the evil dictator, but the, the well-intentioned dictator. Of sure. Wistia. And like, it definitely was also true with like Brendan and other people were yeah. the decision maker on different things, yeah. but without being really, there's, basically there's, what I learned is there's always a structure, whether mm-hmm. or not you define it. And we hadn't defined our company structure mm-hmm. and therefore the structure was inefficient. It wasn't necessarily, necessarily like focused on the right things. Um, and it meant that some people like myself were involved in like every single meeting or decision. And then when we, that really started to break at like 20 ish people. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually at the beginning of this year, we were 30 people. It was broken. We'd kind of broken into functional teams. And then at some point I realized that this thing that I was so afraid of, which was having a structure that I was always afraid of the, like the, the evil dictator basically. Yeah. Um, and trying to pr- protect against that. I realized that actually if we have a structure, but we're really clear about what it means to report to somebody and we're really clear about what it means to be like a good mentor um, and leader that you end up in a really different spot. And so for us, like if someone's on the org chart, people are reporting to them, it's their responsibility to define the responsibility and decisions of the people who report to them mm-hmm. and to act as a mentor and help them grow and all these other things that actually you can hold someone accountable for that are all about distributing decision-making into the, into the company. And once we start to do that, what happened is like I started being on a hell of a lot less meetings. And I started to know not I started to not know what was going on yeah. because everyone's doing great that stuff. That had been scary. And it was terrifying. <laughs> and then of course, very quickly we started we started doing stuff faster. Yeah. Um, we started to do better stuff. Um, and like I'm like, oh, that's actually how this is supposed to work. So you felt like going from flat to a structure, increased velocity. Do you feel like it also Helped employees be happier. Absolutely. What do you? What do you? What was the difference in employee Look, happiness? It was funny. There? I thought that everyone wanted to be at Wistia because it was flat, and then when we like asked people and we had someone come in and like talk to everybody on the team and like they're like, I want to know what I'm supposed to work on, and I want to know who I'm supposed to work with. This is really stressful. Like you giving me this mission. Like always, I used to say, just try to find the right problems to work on. Whatever you should do, try to find the right problems to work on, and everyone would be debating with each other what's the right thing to work on. I don't know. And then, of course, what happened now is like you go to the other direction. It's like we try something. Did it work? Mm-hmm. It didn't. That's fine. Try something else. Yeah. Um, and so we were able to move faster. So it was definitely the right thing, I think. Interesting. Okay. Um, all right. So you recently wrote a blog post about building a company that you'd want to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear more about your philosophy of how you balance that with trying to hire a diverse group of people, uh, kind of what we call here like solving the sameness problem. Sometimes all the people you want to work with are just like you. And I don't mean you specifically, but just people in the world. We have a bias towards ourselves. So how do you balance those two things? That's a great question. I I think, you know, um, one of the ways you do it is like the company that I want to work for is a diverse company. Like, Mm -hmm. and it values that. It's not a company that only has people that are like cookie cutters. Um, I think you look for traits as opposed to backgrounds. So like Mm -hmm. we try to look for people who are, curious and have a lot of grit and um, really value creativity and a value autonomy. And like we look for value matching, 
Um, and we look for value matching on the way in. And then we have our core values for how we want to act. But those are independent of like, um, you know, where someone went to school or what they're into or whatever. In fact, I think at first it's interesting, like a lot of companies, like they surround themselves with people that they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the people that we've hired, we've definitely certainly hired a lot of people through referrals now. But um, in the early days, like I can think of one other person other than Brendan and I that we knew before the company that we hired. We explicitly tried not to work with friends um, for fear that like we already had two good friends like running a company. This could be really bad if we bring in more people and like we risk those other uh, relationships. Yeah, I, I could see that you need a balance between the friendship and the, the folks coming in that have a clean perspective and everything as well. So now that you've gone from a flat organization to to a little bit more structure, your decisions have gone down, but I imagine the decisions you make now are tougher or uh, the hard problems now bubble up to you. And so how do you think about making the tough call? How do you, how do you make those decisions? How does data involved? How does the customer involved? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think... Um the decisions are harder uh, because the ramifications are larger, and like there's a communication element that we used to wasn't a problem. That now it's like, well, when you make a decision, part of the de- making the decision is like, how is it going to be communicated, and what is effect is it? What effect is it going to have on everybody? Um, I think for a long time I tried to guess at how those things should fit together. So I'd be like, all right, well, we're going to make a decision. How am I going to tell everybody about it? And those things were like fit. And that is like really hard, actually, because you get pulled in different directions. Because like the decision that's popular is not necessarily the right decision. I mean, sometimes they're the same. I try to look at like a combination of like being really data informed um, and really trying to put myself in the shoes of um, other people on the team and in the shoes of the customer, and then being really transparent about why we make decisions. And um, when we make hard decisions, when we've done that, uh, what usually happens is we get really good feedback if we're wrong. Um, And I think also a lot of the downside scenarios for things are really only downsides in the short term. So if we work on some projects and we launch a new product and it fails, I mean, that that sucks to have a failure, but... um, and if I'm only thinking about it as like the next six months or what's important, that could be devastating. Mm-hmm. But I always take this like really long-term view. Um, like I, you know, I, I, I never expected ever, ever, ever that nine and a half years after starting Wistia, I would still be doing it or that I would want to do it or that I'd be excited about the future. And now I like look in the future. I'm like, man, if I can keep doing this for like the next 10 or 20 years, like we can build a significant company. Mm-hmm. And if growth is like higher next year or slower, we launch a thing, it doesn't work. It doesn't really matter as long as like we live by our values over the long term. Like I believe that we'll build like something significant. And so that's kind of what I, that's how I think about it. I don't know okay. if that, did that Yeah, answer? no, it t- totally makes, uh, makes sense. It's, it's hard. So if you personally make a decision and you kind of look back and it's the wrong one, yeah. how important is it to kind of just, communicate that to the team and kind of like own up to that. It's like, I feel like you kind of alluded to that, but uh, I, I think wanna... it's super important. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like, you know, it's almost like it's unfair not to communicate it mm-hmm. um, because there's things we've done that were, that we've been wrong on. And then we get in front of the team and we mm-hmm. say, Hey, we did this thing. Like I totally fucked up. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. Turns out this wasn't actually a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And usually the thing is like, I, I have trouble. I have trouble thinking of decisions that we've made that are not, um, 
that we can't learn from and like improve yeah. in the future. Maybe that's part of the magic of like a recurring revenue model too. Yeah. It's like you make decisions and you screw them up, but as long as you like take care of the customer, mm-hmm. you can keep a business going. Um, if you don't do that, I think that's actually where you get really screwed is like, mm. if you stop thinking about the customer and making yeah. decisions and then like you create a poor experience for them yeah. or you try to eke out too much revenue from them or whatever the thing is, um, that's when you can really hurt the business. Okay. You, you just mentioned the customer. I want to talk a little bit real quick about the customer and how, how, how to value uh, customer opinion. How do you at Wistia think about leveraging customer feedback and using it? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's what um, we think of, the way that we think about customer feedback has changed a lot from, from the beginning till now. Okay. So in the beginning, we had a vision for like the type of company we wanted to build. And I think we were kind of selective in the feedback we took from customers and implemented. So um, our first paying customer was a medical device company. They wanted things like the ability to draw in the frame because they wanted to like circle things that were happening in surgeries and they wanted mm-hmm. a bunch of other things. And when we were looking at it, like, this is only going to, this is going to cause us to go down a road where we're only building for like medical companies. And like, is that what we want to do? I'm like, no, no. <laughs> that's not the company we want to, to build. Happy to have those be customers. Can we help them figure out how to solve that problem in a different way? And we're like, well, we're thinking about comments. We're thinking about time coded comments. If we did that, do you think that would solve that problem for you? And they're like, yes, we would. And then as we're going around talking to other customers, we try that same idea out. So it's okay. like, oh, we're talking video production companies. They want something similar. I pitched the time-coded commented thing. They're actually really into it. Turns out that's easy to do, and we can manage that forever. Um, and so that's how we would treat customer research. Now, because of the scale that we're at, um, we've implemented a bunch of different things like help us figure out. So mm-hmm. we have a group of customers called Beta Pugs. Um, which stands for basic uh, experience and user testing, something or another pug. I can't remember what it is. But anyway. uh, I'm sure it's an awesome acronym. It's a great acronym. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Uh, And so that's a group of customers that we always go to um, to get feedback. And they provide feedback on like incremental changes to the product and like new things that we're considering putting in there. And they cut across a variety of like personas and backgrounds and stuff like that. But honestly, a lot of it is still just like talking to customers qualitatively and understanding um, from the things that they're trying to accomplish, what are the things that we can build that are going to match up to it? So it's really informed by it. But I mean, people ask for crazy things every day and you yeah. can't do all of them. Okay. Makes sense. Thanks for thanks for hanging out with us today, Chris. Appreciate me. the time. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. Thanks for listening to our show. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you think by leaving a review on iTunes.